We're going to begin today talking about Byzantine Jerusalem. Um, this is basically um, the Roman Empire from, say, the destruction, uh, Hadrian's uh, destruction of the city, turning into Italy Capitolina, and then through about 600 CE, through the rise of Islam. We're going to see some of the transitions that came to Jerusalem once it became a fully Christian city. Um, the period, uh, can you all see this here? The region that we're talking about here is, obviously, this is the whole Mediterranean. You've got Rome over here in the west. You've got Athens and Greece and all, all of Greece from here. You've got Jerusalem over here in the east. Okay? And Rome becomes kind of the power. Uh, there's a very famous uh, letter from the Apostle Paul written to the Romans. Um, basically, Rome becomes one of the seats or centers of Christianity. And what we're going to be talking about is this area today, which is modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople, Istanbul, Constantinople. There's a great thing like the giant song um, that talks about that. But basically, you're talking about areas east of both Rome and Athens. And we're going to be looking at the transition of the seat of Christian, Christian power and of Roman power, administrative power, the transition from Rome towards the east, towards Istanbul, which, which was at that time called uh, many things. Byzantium is why we call it Byzantine, uh, uh, Byzantine Christianity. But um, it comes to be called Constantinople. We'll look at all that today. And of course, you've got Jerusalem over here in the east. It's a little more nearby. And of course, those of you who are familiar with uh, different Christian denominations today, you've got the Catholic Church, which is usually known as the one Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, Vatican City and Rome, kind of the, the seat of Western Christianity. And you also have what we call Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern uh, Christianity, which could be either Syriac, Syrian Christianity, uh, Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, all of those are considered Eastern Christianity, and they're all basically dealing with the schisms that, that are going to be formed by what we talk about today. Um, and then, of course, we also talked about an Armenian court in Jerusalem, one of the earliest adopters before the Romans adopted Christianity. The first, the answer to the trivia question is the first people to adopt Christianity are the Armenians as, as a people. Uh, just uh, they're in near Turkey, so you can see that's also part of the of the uh, Eastern Christianity. Just to give us some framework here, we're dealing with uh, we talked uh, last week about the end of Roman rule with Hadrian coming in and quelling the Barcaulda revolt, which means the end of uh, Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, he renamed the city Aelia Capitolina. And then we have this, uh, the defeat of the Parthians and of the Persians. We talked about this. And then we're going to be talking about this period here today, the rise of Byzantine Jerusalem, if you want. I'm trying to not do, I'm going to try very hard not to go into a history of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's, it's one of the things I really like and I'll, I will talk about, but I probably won't. I'm going to try to keep the focus on Jerusalem today. Through 637, of course, in 614, Persians come and capture Jerusalem. This is the rise of Islam, and then we'll talk about that on, on Thursday. So we'll be talking about here in yellow. Why Jerusalem? Why? How does Jerusalem become a Christian city? We talked about it as a Canaanite city. We talked about it as a Jewish city, right? an Israelite city, if you will. Then we talked about it as an Assyrian province, a Babylonian province, and then a Persian province. Then we talked about the Hasmonean Revolt, 
uh, pardon the Maccabean revolt, and the Hasmonean dynasty, where the Jews are there in control of themselves again. So it's once again a Jewish city, then the Romans come, and now it's a Roman city. Okay? And during that Roman period, this guy named Jesus from a little town called Nazareth up in the north of Israel, modern Israel, um, shows up and claims to be the promised Messiah. And we talked about 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David. And Jesus shows up and basically his followers say, okay, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a rabbi, but he's the promised Messiah, the Christ. And they begin to pronounce him as this, as this messianic figure. Of course, he dies. Spoiler alert, he dies. But then he comes back from the dead, and that's, that's what the, the tradition says. And then he ascends to heaven. Okay? That's, that's, the, that's the story. And you're going to see this story again about an ascent to heaven out of Jerusalem. It's going to happen with the prophet Muhammad in Islam. A very similar story where the prophet Muhammad from Jerusalem ascends into heaven. So it's a repeated thing that we, that we see in Jerusalem. Um, but the idea is that Jesus, being, being uh, uh, crucified there, buried there, and resurrected from there, makes this now the center, one of the centers of Christianity. Now granted, it moves on to Rome, the, the power seat, the administrative uh, seat of Christian power moves over to Rome, but Jerusalem kind of maintains that, that it's not what they wanted, I don't think, but it's kind of that idea as the second city. It's, it's the city where all the things took place. Rome becomes the, the Christian capital, but Jerusalem kind of maintains its spot as that second city. Um, I put some different events here uh, related to the life of Jesus and to the early church. And these things, especially if you're writing on this period, uh, are, are nice events that are associated specifically with Jerusalem. Okay? For instance, um, Jesus wasn't very popular. In fact, many scholars argue the reason that he was killed was he kept predicting the destruction of the temple. So here you've got this guy who many people are claiming to be the Messiah, and he's claiming, I'm going to destroy the temple, or the temple will be destroyed. And you get this in several of the Gospels. These are now New Testament books, and that right side of the Bible. Right? Three portions of the Bible are his Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and now you're dealing with New Testament. And then you even see text about the spiritual nature of the temple. Similar to what we found when the temple was destroyed after 586, you start to get these, these spiritual ideas of the temple. Remember the Merkabah, the Ark of the Covenant that had wheels on it, the pin my ark, you know, type thing, and Ezekiel sees this vision and God is mobile once again. Well, what do you do when your promised Messiah dies? Well, hopefully he comes back. Well, he comes back, but then he, then he went away again. So where did he go? Now what do you do? Oh, by the way, the temple gets destroyed in 70 CE. Now what do you do? You don't have a temple, and your Messiah has floated up to heaven. What now? So we begin to see the spiritualization of Jerusalem. And of course, we have events in the early church. I just mentioned Jesus' ascension from the Mount of Olives in, in Acts 1, uh, just to the east of the Kidron Valley. Uh, we get this uh, story about the Holy Spirit coming down and blessing the, the early followers of Jesus. So now you've got this other figure called the Holy Spirit. So you have God, and you have this guy claiming to be Jesus, or probably the, that is his followers claiming to be Messiah, Jesus. And now you've got this other manifestation called the Holy Spirit, which will come into conflict uh, as we talk later uh, in the class today. The early church, this is another big deal, the early church was said to be born in Jerusalem. 
Jesus goes away. All of his disciples are having that forest gout moment where they're following him when he's running. Remember that? And he just stops running one day and says, I think I'll go home now. And they're like, what do we do now? Well, they turn to each other and they start telling people the story of Jesus. And they're still kind of not sure what to expect, but they start telling the story. So the church is born in Jerusalem, which is one of the other reasons it's significant to Christian. They start having councils. Things don't go as well. Um, specifically, this guy named Paul shows up. His name was Saul, and he used to persecute Christians. Then he converted and became a Christian because of a vision he says he had. And now he's going to be uh, one of the apostles. Well, the other 12 or 11 that were following Jesus said, no, 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 you can't be one of us. You weren't, he didn't even know Jesus was in around here when he was around. And he says, no, no, I had a vision. I saw him on a vision. And they say, oh, well, okay, then you go do your thing with those Gentiles. You go do your thing with those foreigners. And, and we'll just concentrate on the Jews here in Jerusalem. And then Paul's going around saying that you don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. You can just become a Christian. And the Jews, remember with this long idea of kosher laws and circumcision, so there's, there's an early rift between Judaism and Christianity, and it's recorded in Acts 15, uh, over whether or not Jews have to follow traditional Jewish kosher laws or circumcision laws in order to become Christian. Or can you just accept that Jesus is the promised Messiah and be a Christian. And they, they, they had bitter battles about this. And you have in Acts 15 the account of a council. They all came together and they drew up some rules. And they said, okay, Paul, you can do this, but we ask that you abide by this rule and we'll go ahead and accept this. And on and on. But what we see is the beginning of Christianity transitioning from a Jewish religion or a sect within Judaism to something totally different. So between Acts 15, between the end of the first century CE um, and basically the second and third century CE, we begin to see the formal split between what was a sect of Judaism, the early Christians, to a full-blown separate religion of its own. And that's, that's our point of split. And then, of course, from that point forward, the church, Christianity, splits God knows how many times, just over and over and over, over every little doctrinal issue you can imagine. This is why somebody says, I'm a Christian, and somebody usually follows that with what kind, or what branch, or what denomination. Um, and then we have Paul arrested, and things like that. And I also want to point out Revelation 21 and 22. Remember, it's the book of Revelation. No S. No S on it. In fact, I'll probably put that on the test. And you'll have two options. What's the, you know, what's the last book of the New Testament? And it'll be Revelation and Revelation. And if you miss it, you just minus 100. <laughs> I, I hate that. I despise it when people call it the book of Revelation. Um, you start to see this vision of a new Jerusalem. If anybody has already read ahead and read through the book of Revelation, it talks about, and behold, I see a new Jerusalem. Well, why? Why would they want to couch this new kingdom, right? When you're having these apocalyptic visions, why would you couch it as a new Jerusalem? And the answer is obviously because the, the concept of Jerusalem as the axis mundi, as the center of peace, the center point, the, period, the point of connection between the divine realm and the earthly realm, as being Jerusalem, is so entrenched that everything from that point forward has to at least consider Jerusalem. So Christianity is going to go its own way, and it's obviously going to move to Rome, and Rome's going to the Vatican and the popes and all that stuff, but they still need to make sure that Jerusalem is part of that legend. Otherwise, I would argue, it wouldn't be considered legit. 
Jerusalem has to maintain some kind of centerpiece since that's where it all started. Okay. So what we're going to see with the rise of Byzantine Christianity is this tension, this, this never-ending struggle between movements towards the west and the desire to keep Christianity towards the east, towards the Jerusalem. Uh, a couple of those verses I, I mentioned, here's Mark 13, uh, and it's talking about Jesus. Now, this is a Jewish rabbi who loves the temple and goes to worship at the temple. And he turns around and says, as he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said, look, teacher, what massive stones. And you saw these stones, right? Remember that we talked about the stones being as, as wide as this room, right? He says, look at what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And he says, do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down, which will make you immediately unpopular among Jewish people if you start prophesying that the temple will be destroyed. Now, did was that written? Did the, the author of the Gospel of Mark put those words in the mouth of Jesus after the temple had indeed been destroyed? Or did Jesus really predict that? Or did he know what was coming? Not just uh, sometimes you know when you're under siege. I think in Baghdad, Saddam knew after a while something bad was about to happen. Right? So he could say, look, I think we're going to get destroyed. Is that a prophecy or is that just just acknowledging what's about to happen. We don't know. Maybe we can argue that in some other class. But you have a reference here to the size of the stones in Jerusalem. Or look here in Luke, the, the New Testament book of Luke 21. Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that the desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country uh, not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that's been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women, nursing mothers, they will be great distress in the land of wrath against his people. They will fall by the sword. They will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Which means what? You're a Jewish rabbi. You're standing on the steps of the temple and you're saying, what? This place is going to be destroyed and we're all going to be killed and they're going to knock this down and the Gentiles are coming. It makes you very unpopular. Right? So it's one of the reasons many scholars argue that the Jews wanted to kill them. Is if we don't, you can't preach against the temple. That's another. Let me show you an example of the spiritualization of Jerusalem. And then we'll move on. So there's this famous episode in John chapter 4. It's John is the fourth book in the Christian New Testament. And Jesus is at this well, uh, and he's uh, gathering water, right? And a woman shows up. And uh, he says, woman, give me a drink. Which, you know, Jesus does this every once in a while. Everybody makes Jesus up to be very pious. And very, but every once in a while, he does these very, like, get, you know, go fetch me a drink or something like this. And he uses it to, to begin this conversation. And then he basically tells her that he knows she's sleeping around with a bunch of guys. So Jesus, you know, thank you, Jesus, for pointing out that I've had multiple affairs. And uh, she says, in response to this, uh, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, which is referring to Mount Gerizim, because she's a Samaritan woman in the north. Remember Mount Gerizim? It'll be on your exam. But you Jews claim that the place uh, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's acknowledging this. There's two rival temples, right? Mount Gerizim, and there's Jerusalem. And Jesus says, "Believe me, woman." Time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, 
So you get these repeated, especially in the Gospel of John, which appears to be a more cosmic gospel. It's more spiritual. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's called the, synop the synoptic gospels. They're very similar to one another. And they tend to deal with the Jewishness of Jesus, the tradition, very standard, very good Jewish text. Whereas John is more of this cosmic, Greek, Hellenized, uh, spiritual, if you want to call it that, gospel. Where Jerusalem does not even, there will come a day where we don't even worship in Jerusalem. And of course this baffles the woman because it's neither Gesari, uh, 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 the Samaritan holy place or Jerusalem. And then he's like, well, well where is it going to be? And he goes, no, 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 we're going to be worshiping spiritual instead of in a place. Which again makes you very unpopular if you're Jewish and you're arguing against the temple. Okay. So Jerusalem is significant to Christianity because it's where Jesus was said to have been crucified, buried, and resurrected. That's the central point. And the Romans are the ones that, uh, that string them up, and you get up there, you get probably more painted than anything else with the crucifixion of Jesus. This is the one by Raphael. Um, they put a sign over his head that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Right? He claims to be the, the Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah was obviously a reference to being king. You want to claim to be king? Here's what we do to kings who claim to be king in the Roman Empire. We string them up. And while he's hanging on the cross dying, <coughs> those who pass by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. They mock him, according to the text, because he kept claiming, I'll destroy the temple and build it in three days. So again, this is another destruction temple. Of course, the Christians then turn and say, what, is, what he was referring to was his body. And see, he came back from the dead three days later, or on the third day, depending on which gospel you read. Uh, and Jesus was talking about himself. Which, if you think about it, really doesn't improve things, right? They're still not talking about the temple. Jesus is saying, now I'm the temple. Okay, you can't do that either, Jesus. Right? Not if you're Jewish. The temple's the temple. Jerusalem's Jerusalem. So that's that's one of the key texts that causes a lot of problems in Judaism. But it's uh, Jerusalem is significant because this is where he's crucified, killed, and then according to the text, raised from the dead and ascends to heaven. Questions so far? Okay, let's move on. Um, we left off uh, with the destruction by Hadrian. Uh, suppressing the Bar Kokhba revolt 135 and the Bar Kokhba revolt 132 to 135 CE. And Hadrian bans all the Jews from there, doesn't allow them to come back except for when? The ninth of Av to mourn the loss of their temple. That's very kind of him, right? And he renames the city Alia Capitolina. Well, by the uh, beginning of the fourth century CE, we see, uh, and this is in your notes on, online, um, they, he's basically turned it into the beginnings of a true Roman city. So you've got a cargo, you've got some of the gates, you're starting to get some temples. Temple of Aphrodite is sitting here, we'll talk about that in a second. Of course, you've got the Temple of Jupiter, right? Temple of Zeus that's built where the Jewish temple was. So the idea is how do you snuff out a religion? You build something on top of it. You don't just knock it down because they'll come back and rebuild it. You build something else on top of it which is in keeping with what Eliada says, that uh, holy places tend to remain holy despite what religion, whatever new religion comes in. It's a key thing. Holy sites <coughs> tend to attract 
stories, and then once that religion goes away and a new one moves in, it becomes the holy site for the new religion as well. What's going on in Roman history in the meantime? Well, um, about 285 CE, the Emperor Diocletian decides, you know what? Just having one emperor, it, the kingdom is so big, it would be nice to have a partner. So we enter this period in Roman history called the Tetrarchy. Now, we've already had Herod the Great's sons called Tetrarchs, correct? Remember Herod the Great had three sons, and I went back and revised, by the way, the Herodian uh, period PowerPoints to add the, 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 the five minutes that I spoke about at the beginning of class, about Herod had three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And Archelaus was made kind of the ethnarch over Jerusalem, and Antipas and Philip were called tetrarchs, because they, they controlled a quarter of the territory, tetra. This is different. This is the Roman Empire basically being divided up into co-rulers, okay? So what happens first is Diocletian takes on an apprentice, right, uh, Maximian. And he says, you're going to be kind of co-ruler with me, but you're going to be beneath me. And they split the titles. So one becomes Augustus, an emperor, and one becomes Caesar, or Kaiser. And he's, he's kind of the, the under, the second in command, the vice, the vice emperor, if you will. But of course, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and Maximian kind of elevates himself and is very successful. And at one point, then Diocletian decides, you know what, why don't we be co-emperors? Because the kingdom is moving farther and farther to the east. So Diocletian becomes the Augustus in the east, Maximian becomes Augustus in the west, and they're elevated to the same standing. And then each of them take on a Caesar. Each of them gets kind of a vice emperor, if you will. Um, so you get Galerius under Diocletian uh, in the east, and Constantius in the west under Maximian. Okay? Now I won't, I'll, I'll skip all of the, I mean this is, if you like political science, this is what you want to study here. This is fascinating. The tensions between east and west, and the inter interplay, if any, of religion in that, in that. But what you need to know is this guy's son, is named Constantine, and he becomes Constantine the Great. So we'll have to skip all the Roman history, but we do want to talk about Jerusalem, and the next key player is Constantius' uh, son, Constantine the First, or Constantine the Great. Any questions about the Tetrarchy? Any questions about Diocletian? Okay. Constantine the Great shows up and uh, basically says, I've had it with this tetrarchy. You know, collaboration is, is never easy. Sharing power is no fun. Uh, I would just like to be emperor myself. Uh, usually they're somewhere around saying, uh, no, I'm not going to let you do that without a fight. And Constantine says, well, OK, um, we'll fight. And on his way to this battle, uh, the Nubian Bridge, the sources say he has a vision. And he has a vision which it comes down to, you know, we don't know what he saw. But the way that it's traditionally told is he sees a symbol something like this. Now this X is actually the Greek letter P, P, usually C-H-I, P, pronounced P. And this letter here is not a P, it's a Greek what? 
the, the patron uh, of early Christianity. In fact, he sets up um, a council called the Council of Nicaea. And we won't, that's another, that's another class. We don't have a lot of time to discuss it. But um, he did a lot of things. Um, the Council of Nicaea is essentially the first ecumenical council. Let me put it this way. Constantine didn't care so much what Christianity believed. He just wanted them to, to believe one thing. Right? If, as some scholars argue, Constantine converted to Christianity so that he could use Christianity to unite his empire. It was popular. It was kind of, that was the new trend. It was going that way. He took his opinion polls and he goes, you know what? Why don't we unite behind Christianity? Because you've got this tetrarchy, right? Two emperors here and, and Caesars and all this stuff. How do we bring the whole kingdom together? He wanted control over the whole thing. Well, some scholars have argued he used Christianity to do this. So Constantine didn't really meddle, and I, I, I use that term loosely, in the doctrines of Christianity. He let the bishops take care of that. The Christian bishops are kind of the leaders of the religion. All he did is said, we're going to put all you bishops who disagree about, is Jesus God, or is Jesus not God, or... Uh, it was Jesus ever fully man, or was he not fully man? We're going to put all you guys in a room, and you're going to come out with a decision. And whatever you decide, that's fine. But when you decide it, I'm going to be in charge of enforcing orthodoxy. So what I mean by he didn't meddle with it, yeah, he did meddle with it. He said, get together and come out with an opinion. And again, I would argue, and we don't have time for this, but early Christianity was incredibly diverse. But once the emperor says, I want one set of rules, I want to know what I have to do, I want to know what to believe, I want to know what to say, I want to know how to pray, I want to know how to sing, you figure it out, but come out with a decision. All of a sudden, Christianity, you start getting people excommunicated and voting out, and they come out with doctrines, and they're throwing out this book, and they're throwing out this book, and they come up with a canon, and now you've got what we call, what we would later call, Orthodox Christianity. One of the, the seventh canon of the Council of Nicaea reserves some language for Jerusalem. Alia, which is the other name for Jerusalem, Mary Catholic, should have an honored position. So they know that Rome is already going to have the, the lion's share of the administrative and authoritative power, but they want to reserve some preferential treatment for the city of Jerusalem. Okay. So Constantine built a lot of basilicas, he granted exemption from taxes to clergy. If you were a Christian clergy person, um, you know, some kind of uh, priest, you didn't have to pay tax, which always made, anytime you cut people's taxes, that makes something very popular, right? Um, as I said, he returned confiscated property. He actually appointed Christians to high-ranking offices, got them into the bureaucracy, into the administration, and then, just for good measure, he abolished crucifixion, because crucifixion was that way that Jesus died. But he couldn't go soft, so he replaced it with hanging. Right? So we still got to have some justice, but we're just not going to crucify people anymore. Okay. So this is Constantine's impact. He built some he built some basilicas and things, but he was basically responsible for allowing Christianity to be some kind of to be accepted, if you will. He was very sympathetic to it. He allowed Christians to, to uh, basically practice their beliefs. And of course, he's going to now conquer it, which fundamentally changes Christianity as we know it. Now, 
Like every great emperor, Constantine has a mom. Helen. Helen. And she wasn't the queen, but she might as well have been. This is Constantine's mom. And, she, and most scholars would say that Constantine learned Christianity from mom, like many people do today. And Helena was basically um, the one who said, I'm gonna go find relics. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna prove all of this stuff. Now, what did I say uh, a couple lectures ago? Archaeology doesn't prove if someone's God or not. It does, it's not used for that. We don't use archaeology for that. We don't care. As an archaeologist, what you do with the data, you know, we care about what you do with the data, but we're not here to say which religion is true or which, you know, which God is, who's God and who's not. We're here to tell you what the rocks and the ground say. We're here to say, um, this is what the coin, this is what the evidence is, and we try to tell history from an objective standpoint. But Helen is going to use archaeology to prove Jesus or to prove Christianity. So she takes a trip in 324 to Jerusalem. And she ordered, uh, she ordered uh, the, like for instance, she went to, um, to Mount Sinai where she was told the event of the burning bush took place in Exodus. And she said, build a church there. We're going to commemorate these. So what's she doing? If you're Eliana, what would you say she's doing? Consecrating places by doing what? What's the big fancy word? What? Amago Mundi? Okay, so she's, she's putting these, these um, structures on holy places to commemorate. Um, what else did she do? Um, there's a great, and we'll look at it here in a second. Um, Chapel of St. Catherine's Monastery, or the Chapel of St. Helen, is dated to about 330. Uh, Jerusalem was still rebuilding from the destruction from Hadrian. Okay? And remember, he built a temple uh, to Venus um, over the site, or there was, let me say this, there was a temple of Venus over the site that Helena thought uh, may have been where Jesus' tomb was. How did she know that that's where Jesus' tomb was? Answer? What's that? There was a temple there, so that's an idea, right? We tend, to, we tend to commemorate sacred spaces with other temples. But what's the most objective way you can think of to, to, to know for certain that that's the place where Jesus was buried? She had a vision. She had a vision. So she has a vision, and she goes, that's where the now Some people told her, and we think it was over there. So she has a vision to confirm it, and sure enough, that's where Jesus was buried. And she's the emperor's mama, right? Tear it down. So she rips down this temple of Venus, and she orders uh, a church to be built there, and it comes to be known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, I will stop for a second and say, some people don't like that story, because it makes it look like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre might not be the actual tomb of Jesus. Um, so some people a while back said, well, how do we know? Besides, they looked at the wall of Jerusalem and they said, you wouldn't have buried someone, a Jewish person, inside of the wall of the city. So they went outside and uh, famous, I'll spare you the whole story, but the guy's having a vision and he looks out of his window and he sees Golgotha. He sees a piece of stone that looks like a skull and he goes, that's outside of the wall of the city. That's where Jesus was buried, right there. And this is what we now call the garden tomb. 
if you go to Jerusalem to visit the garden tomb, um, there's this other rival burial point of Jesus. The only problem is, is it too was basically uh, built because of a vision. Right? A guy thought he saw it. And two, it turns out that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was indeed outside of the earlier set of walls. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which does have first century tombs in it. Um, but that, but the, the Holy Sepulchre was actually built outside of the wall, so it is a viable candidate for where Jesus would be born. Answer, we're not sure where it was, but the earliest traditions go back to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I'll show you some pictures of that in a second. Yeah? So it doesn't matter that he was a convicted um, criminal and was still buried in outside the city anymore? Oh, you can't do, uh, uh, what do they call it, kill people, executions inside the city. Uh, they have to be taken. So, for instance, in the New Testament, there's always these uh, instances where they try to kill Jesus, or they try to kill Paul, they just grab him, they try to, you know what stoning people is? It's not like getting stoned today. It's, it's different. Getting stoned back in the day was, they would take huge rocks and just pelt you with rocks until you became unconscious, and then they would just keep burying you with rocks. They'd bury you alive with rocks. That's how you stoned someone back in the day. And they would always drag him out of the city to do this, because you weren't supposed to do it inside the city, because you're, technically it's a form of execution. So, Christians of the era thought that Jesus was buried somewhere, but they also believed he ascended. How did they rectify that? Well, they, 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 Christians would argue that he came back from the dead, right? But wherever he was buried, wherever he, you know, God, after, you know, Jesus, I gotta be careful how I say this, uh, Christians believe that Jesus, at least Orthodox Christians today believe that Jesus is God, or part of the God he had been. But there was a period of a couple hundred years where that was under debate. The Arians said, okay, he may have become God, but he certainly wasn't born God. How can he be born God? He was fully human, was he not? How can he be God and human, right? This is pre-Trinity. Right? There's a couple hundred years where people fought and died over whether or not Jesus was actually God. Now, the Nicaeans, because of, in part, the Council of Nicaea, the Nicaeans won out over the Gnostics and the Docetists and the Arians and all these other rival groups of Christians that argued Jesus was something other than God and human at the same time. Okay? So they ended up pointing out what you have today is the doctrine of the Trinity, which tries to reconcile the Holy Spirit, Jesus as a human, but also God and God. They came up with this doctrine that doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. It is the doctrine of the Trinity, which kind of tries to explain all of this. How do you have a monotheistic faith with three different gods, if you will, Holy Spirit, Jesus, and okay? That said, even though they, they believe that he came back from the dead and went away, wherever he was buried, and any time you have a place where somebody was buried and said to come back to life, I'm, I'm going to want to visit that spot, right? It's kind of like the hatch. Is it the hatch? Going to the island, I'm lost, right? I, I want to go there. I want to see why, why did people come back? Why are they still living, right? you got to make one lost reference every place. All right. So that's how they do it. It's still a special place. Even though he came back, that's still where he died. And of course, later Catholic traditions say he descended down to hell, right? He descended into hell as one of the early creeds. And so now you've got a real access movie, right? Can it's heaven to earth to hell. Well, we gotta build a church there. That's what you do. You build build buildings when you need to uh, when you need to commemorate something. So um, she's kind of being credited with one of the earliest Christian pilgrimages. And we're going to talk about pilgrimage just briefly in a second. One of the things that becomes very popular is to show that you're a real Christian by going to visit 
the early the early manifestations of that religion. Has anyone done, you don't have to raise your hand, if you've done a pilgrimage, you know that what you do, and, and by the way, when we get to Islam, it's one of the five things that every Muslim must do. The Hajj. You must go and at least once in your life, and as often as you can afford it, visit Mecca to the Kaaba and to, to go and uh, to, to visit, to, to walk around, to, to do the whole, it's a whole thing, a pilgrim trail that you do, you throw rocks and you, you worship. But every Muslim is commanded to do this. Well, before that, the Christians began to do pilgrimages. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So she dedicates the Church of the Nativity, which is a neat church uh, where Jesus was said to have been born. Build a church, right? The Church of the Ascension, where Jesus is said to have gone up into the sky. Build a church there, right? And then, of course, she rededicated the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. There's even a chapel of Helena uh, in there. And it, as I said, it becomes the new Axis Mundi. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is going to replace the Temple Mount as the new kind of center of faith in Jerusalem, at least for this period this time. Any questions? Does yes. that counter Eliade's theory that you can't that the places don't move? It it would it would appear to, but the problem is that that space is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So now it's not just the, the temple, but it's also the Holy Sepulchre. They tried to move it, but as we know today, you know, they want to call all of it Jerusalem. Right? Ask, ask a, a Palestinian or ask a Jew if they're willing to give up half of their city. Both of them, no, 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 no. Some of them want to split it. That's the most sensible thing to do. But, um, a lot of them don't want to split the city. It's the eternal capital, and they want it to be for, for both states. We'll talk about that in, in week 10. Helena, you should know. Here's a chat, here's a picture, I'm just showing you some pictures. Chapel of Helena. Um, Mark Twain, you guys know who Mark Twain is? Mark Twain wrote a very famous book called Innocence Abroad. And if you've ever read Mark Twain, he's a little sarcastic. How would you describe Mark Twain? A little sarcastic, a little very sharp tongue. Okay. And, um, and let me just read you a, a, a clip about his visit to the Chapel of Helena. Okay? Because it conveys to you the idea of how Helena, Constantine's mom, would decide if this was a true relic. She didn't just decide where Jesus was buried. When she would go find relics, and one of her big things was finding nails of the cross. She wanted to find the actual nails that were used to crucify Jesus. Okay. Um, she wanted to find the true cross. She wanted to find splinters of the true cross. And as I've said before, if you counted up all of the splinters of the true cross that, that people claim to have around cathedrals in Europe, you know, you've got the Statue of Liberty, something that big. It's, you know, it's just, that was the big thing. She started it, and here's Mark Twain's, uh, I'll read it very quickly. He says, here also, a marble slab marks the place where St. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, found the crosses 300 years after the crucifixion. Keep in mind, this is Mark Twain, so I'm going to try to read it like I think Mark Twain's writing. Okay. According to the legend, this great discovery elicited extravagant, extravagant demonstrations of joy. He would <laughs> but they were of uh, short duration. The question intruded itself, which of the crosses bore the blessed Savior? And which of the thieves? Right? You don't want the cross that you know, Jesus was said to be crucified between two thieves. Well, you don't want the thieves' cross. You want Jesus' cross, right? <laughs> Um, to be in doubt, 
in so mighty a matter as this, to be uncertain which one to adore, was a grievous misfortune. It turned the public joy to sorrow. But when lived there a holy priest who could not see a simple trouble as, as this at rest, one of these soon hit upon a plan that would be a certain test. A noble lady lay very ill in Jerusalem. The wise priest ordered that the three crosses be taken to her bedside one at a time, and it was done. When her eyes fell upon the first cross, she uttered a scream that was heard beyond the Damascus Gate, right? So he knows his geography, right? Remember the Damascus Gate way up there in the north? And even up to the Mount of Olives. And you guys know, you guys get this because you know the geography of Jerusalem. Uh, where was that? Even up to the Mount of Olives. It was said, and then fell back in a deadly swoon. They recovered her and brought to the second, brought to her the second cross. Instantly, she went into fearful convulsions, and it was with the greatest difficulty that six strong men uh, could could hold her. They were afraid now to bring the third cross. They began to fear that possibly they had fallen upon the wrong crosses, and that the true cross was not with this number at all. However, as the woman seemed likely to die with the convulsions that were tearing her. They concluded that the third cross could do no more than put her out of her misery with a happy dispatch. Right? So they brought it in, and behold, a miracle. The woman sprang from her bed, smiling and joyful, perfectly restored to health. When we listen to evidence like this, we cannot but believe. Right? So Twain's being a little, little sarcastic, right? Uh, we would be ashamed to doubt, and properly, too. And then he goes on to tell the rest of the story. Basically, she brings three crosses, and puts her next to a, a dying woman, and the one that resurrects her. So the, the idea is that the wood that upon Jesus was said to have been crucified, that she thinks is the actual cross, uh, has miraculous powers. So for instance, she was said to take nails. She said she found all this stuff, right? The tunic of Jesus and the nails of Jesus. And she would bring them back and put them in reliquaries, right? Holy relics. And this is where we get this tradition, a continuing tradition, that holy relics have some kind of supernatural power, and you should go adorn them and worship them, and they would build, you know, there's a mosque in Akko um, uh, on the coast in Israel that says to have, and I went to visit, and they let me see it, a whisker from the beard of Muhammad, right? That's, that's a relic, so you, it's, it's Muhammad's a prophet, you don't mess with him, right? Or the true cross of Jesus, or the Shroud of Turin, which is fake, by the way, the Shroud of Turin, shown time and time again, is a fake, but you can make a lot of money doing documentaries asking the question once again, is the Shroud of Turin really fake? Right. It's fake. But it doesn't stop them from selling a lot of tickets and people going to see it. Okay. So this whole institution of using relics to attract uh, pilgrims uh, begins with, with uh, Constantine. Constantine von Heller. Later on we move to a guy named Julian, and he's nicknamed by Christians, obviously, the Apostate. Julian the Apostate. He was essentially the last non-Christian ruler of the Roman Empire. This is post-Constantine, right? He basically wanted to go through and bring back, he, he was like into traditional family values, right? Traditional Roman values. We're going to bring back the true religion of Rome. We're going to bring back the way we used to do things. These new Christians, I don't know, if they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their saviors. Who does that, right? That's cannibalism. Right? Think about it. That's one of one of the, the Eucharists of the Lord's Supper is the ritualistic reenactment of a human sacrifice. Christians make Jesus out to be a sacrifice by God, his son, 
for human humanity. And how do you how do you remember this? You eat his flesh and drink his blood. So in a sense, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is the ritualistic reenactment of a human sacrifice. A lot of the Romans, by the way, Julian and other, other historians at the time, this was what you called, this was the criticism of Christianity. Okay? They are um, uh, cannibals. They eat the flesh and drink the blood willingly of their supposed savior. Uh, and they, they participated in orgies because they walked around saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. Greet each other with a holy kiss. That's not the Roman way of doing things. So to bring back good traditional Roman values of worshiping Jupiter and Mars and you know, the way we used to do things, he starts to get rid of those Christian appointees that were appointed to um, the bureaucracies and the government in Rome, right? Um, and one of the other things he began to do was rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple in Jerusalem for Jews. Now think about that. You've already experienced this basic split between Christians and Jews. So one of the ways that you can really stick it to the Christian is to help out the Jews. Because of this, he was called Julian the Apostle. And I put a nice little quote in here. The idea is that he puts uh, Olympias in, in charge of rebuilding the temple. Um, but as he starts out, fearful balls of fire breaking out near the foundations <coughs> continued their attacks till the workmen, after repeated scorchings, could approach no more, and he gave up the attempt. And the big question is, who was throwing fire at these guys to make them stop rebuilding the, the, the temple in Jerusalem? Christians say it was divine fire, right? Divine retribution for trying to rebuild the temple. This is a Christian city now. Other people think that this is people who didn't want the Jews, the anti-Semites, right? You know, we don't want you to build the Jerusalem temple. Forget the Christian. We don't want to see the, the temple rebuilt. We don't know what caused the fire, but for whatever reason, he failed at rebuilding the temple. Um, and then, of course, there's Theodosius, who comes along after Julian the Apostate. And not only, we've already had the Edict of Milan, uh, uh, the Edict that's, that legalizes Christianity. Now Theodosius comes along and essentially in 391 makes Christianity the state religion. Okay? Theodosius, by the way, was the last emperor of the East and West. Um, he was the last united emperor. After that, the kingdom was going to split into East and West. He made specifically Nicene Christianity the official state religion. We talked about the Council of Nicaea, which concluded in this doctrine that comes to be known as the Trinity. But prior to uh, the Council of Nicaea, and, and you know, this is the fourth century. So basically 300 years have gone by after Jesus came and went, that they're still arguing about, is Jesus God? Is Jesus, are they on the same level or is one the Son or can they be equal? 300 years they debated this. Well, Nicene Christianity wins out uh, if you read uh, Rubenstein's book, it's, it's for political reasons. Right? The Western Christians were basically Nicene Christians, and the Eastern Christians were Aryan Christians, and the West ones out. So Nicene Christianity wins. So not only does he um, make it the state religion, but he tries to go out and do what, was, what Julian had done, and put down the, the vestiges and the practices of Roman paganism, the traditional Roman religion. That is, he went to the Temple of Vesta in the Roman form and extinguished the eternal fire. Which is a big deal, right? You know, how do you, how do you make fire? You usually get fire from fire. Now we have matches and butane things, but 
one of the things you used to do is just have a fire always burning. And if the fire never goes out, you can always make a new fire. In fact, I put two videos on our course website uh, that takes place in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre called The Miracle of the Holy Fire. And you're, you can go watch them. They're on the, there's, there are YouTube videos on our course website. Um, but what it essentially is, is every Easter, the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church goes into the Edicule, we'll see a picture of it in a second, and he comes out miraculous fire. Before they do that, they take light, oh, make sure nobody has any lighters, nobody has any candles. And then he goes in there and he prays, and then miraculously this thing lights up, he sticks it outside, people have their torches, and then the whole, it's a, it's a neat thing, even if you don't believe that the, the fire miraculously happens on Easter Sunday in the, in the Holy Sepulchre, because there's this glowing light spreads. It spreads like fire. So that's what they used to have. It used to be a sacred fire. And they, so he goes out and extinguishes it. It's kind of the big symbol that Roman religion is now on its way out. Um, the Vestal Virgins were disbanded. Um, if you practice any form of witchcraft at all, any kind of di divination, any kind of paganism, which is worship of the earth, um, that was, that was uh, to be punished. And then um, some other uh, traditionalists, Roman, Roman religion, I call them pagans, but it's just it's the, the Roman religion, um, wanted them to come back and restore the altar of victory, and he, he wouldn't do it. So Theodosius was basically responsible for making Christianity the state religion uh, of Rome. Question? Talk about Eudocia, and then we'll talk about Justinian, and then we'll look at some pictures. Again, all of this is on the course website. We'll print it out um, later if you miss anything. Um, Eudocia was the wife of Emperor Theodosius II. Became a devout Christian after she got married. Right? Um, she did a pilgrimage uh, in 438 to Jerusalem, remember this class is about Jerusalem, not the history of the Roman Empire. Um, stayed there a year um, and came back with what she thought were the remains of St. Stephen. In Acts chapter seven, there's a character named Stephen that gets stoned in the biblical sense, right? He's taken out of the city and they, and they pound him with stones. He's kind of the first Christian martyr. He's the first person to be stoned to death for claiming to see Jesus in a vision. She comes back with the bones, which she claims are the bones of St. Stephen. Um, of course, now that she's converted to Christianity, she leaves her husband and goes back to Jerusalem and stays there until her death. She either initiated or financed uh, a number of building projects, churches, hospitals, um, homes to the elderly, things like that, um, and, and built lots of other, lots of other things for it. She also displayed a very positive attitude towards the Jewish population. Unlike other Christians who had kind of tried to shoot Judaism to the side, um, she was very uh, sensitive to the Jewish population. For instance, after Julian the Apostate, um, remember Julian tried to rebuild the temple, there was a lot of anti-Jewish laws that were put into place, and a lot of synagogues were being burned to the ground, things like that. Um, Eudocia uh, permitted Jewish community of Palestine uh, to renew pilgrimage for Sukkot for one of the, for one of the holidays. So she was very sympathetic 
to uh, Jewish practice in the city. So now you've got someone who's basically saying, hey, this is a Christian city, but we'll, we'll tolerate and allow Jewish practices as well. Keep that in mind because it becomes the model for pluralism within the city of Jerusalem, which we will see again back and forth uh, when Islam comes to Jerusalem next uh, Thursday. There are some caliphs, there are some uh, leaders in Islam uh, in Jerusalem who want nothing to do with Judaism and Christianity. Otherwise, you're like, no, we run the city, but you can practice, you can worship, just pay your taxes. Right? Don't revolt. The other one that we need to look at quickly that I want you to know is Justinian. So now we're dealing with the 6th century CE. And Justinian um, basically makes the most dramatic uh, contributions, building-wise, to the city of Jerusalem. He really does transform this into a Roman slash Byzantine Christian city. And he built basically two big things, and we'll look at them here in a second. One is the Nea Church, or the New Church of St. Mary. St. Mary, uh, Mary was said to be the mother of Jesus. which some people think was the biggest church in the Byzantine world, and the Cardo. Every Roman city has a Cardo, main strip, main, main drag, main street, right here, and then a Decamanus that bisects and intersects it. And so he, based upon what Hadrian had done to alien Capitolina, he comes along and expands the Cardo. Okay, and I'll show you how we know this in just a second. Um, the Cardo connected all of the major churches and it moved over to the Western Hill. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchres on the Western Hill, the Nia Church, the Church of Sacred Zion on the southern extremity. And what you see under Justinian is, remember when I talked about Mount Zion's gonna move? Remember I kept telling you, Mount Zion's gonna move. Mount Zion used to be the Temple Mount. Zion, we have all these songs about Zion. But if you go to Israel today and you get in a cab and you say, take me to Mount Zion, they take you to the Western Hill. Remember Western Hill, Eastern Hill? They take you over here mostly because of Justinian. He basically is, is responsible for bringing all the major, uh, including the nomenclature, including the name Zion, to the western hills. It's no longer on the Temple Mount. It's now over in the Christian part of Jerusalem. Remember our four quarters of, of Judaism? is on the exam. We have to pick the four quarters. That Christian part is that uh, southwest corner of Jerusalem, the western hill. Any questions about this so far? It's a lot of facts I know. We'll spend the rest of our period looking at some pictures. Questions? I said we mentioned pilgrimage. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, you had the traditional Jewish pilgrimages, right? The, the, the three festivals, and then of course, before the destruction of the temple. But after the destruction of the temple, they were allowed to come in on the ninth of Bob, which is the date coincidentally, of both destruction of the first and second temple in Jerusalem. But you also have some famous Christians that began this practice of pilgrimage. So again, the idea of going to visit the holy city on special occasions continues. Jerusalem is still the destination for pilgrims, even though there's a new religion controlling the city. Helena, we've already talked about. There's a famous, uh, there's a famous uh, story, it's an anonymous Jewish or Christian, Judeo-Christian traveler called the Pilgrim of Bordeaux. 
and he made a pilgrimage in Jerusalem in 333. Uh, went through Milan and Rome and then went to Jerusalem. And he left, and the only reason we know about him is he left an account of his trip. And his chronicle is the oldest uh, pilgrim account. And he actually describes some of the monuments and some of the distances and the landmarks of the time. So again, it's a literary account. And as we talked about using archaeology, can you trust literary accounts? Forget the Bible, forget the Quran for a second. Can you trust somebody's diary? Does, does this person have any reason to lie about what happened? And does he have any reason to lie about the places, the landmarks? And a lot of scholars will say, you people tend less to exaggerate or lie about the existence of places. Because those are hard, those are harder to fit, right? Those are harder to make up. But they'll, they, they might tend to exaggerate a little bit what happened to them in those places. So what we do have uh, the Pilgrim Porto, um, Igeria, Igeria um, is a Spanish pilgrim um, who made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land about 381 CE. And she also wrote an account of her journey um, still survives as a fragmentary copy today. Many people say this is one of the first um, Christian documents accounts written by a woman. Not that we know about, written by a woman. Of course, then we have Gregory, Gregory of Nyssa, who, who writes in 338, the physical experience of Jerusalem transmitted blessing and that it contained the footprints of life. So you begin to see this tradition build. And we talked about the traditions of Jerusalem, the myths about Jerusalem build up. Now the Christians are beginning to stack traditions upon traditions. In fact, it's got so much gravity. It's like a, it's like a, a uh, what do they call it, black hole? Or, it's, it's getting so much gravity that now you have to go visit if you're a real Christian. You have to do a pilgrimage. We actually have graffiti on a pillar in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So what do you do when you go hiking that you're not supposed to do? Or what do you do when you go to some, you cross a famous bridge? Or have you ever been tempted to pull out a thing, you know, Bob was here? Right? Or you carve your name, you carve a big heart, and you're your girlfriend, or your boyfriend. Um, that's what we have. On the pillars in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we actually have crosses and names and shields. And people go there, and to prove that they went on the pilgrimage, they carve their name. Um, you have psalms that can, even though they were psalms about going to Jerusalem, uh, there's still psalms about going to Jerusalem. They're just going to the churches now instead of the Temple Mount. And you have even uh, a Latin uh, pilgrim graffiti with a boat. Remember the before the cross was a symbol of Christianity, loaves and fishes were boats. It was the fishermen, Jesus, I think. And they basically they're coming across the seas and they say, "Lord, we have come." So we see these graffitis, we see this, these uh, remnants of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to worship, to be good Christians. Now, I mentioned that we know where a lot of these things are uh, based upon an ancient map. If I didn't tell you that, uh, we know where a lot of these things are based on an ancient map. But it's not a roll-up kind of map that you would find in, in National Treasure um, behind Mount Rushmore. It's the Madaba map, Madaba. Created about the 6th century CE, and it's in modern-day Jordan. It's a mosaic. 
somebody took the time to build a map of the ancient, basically all of the area around Jerusalem in mosaic. Little tiles about this big, lay it down, lay it down, and they actually built, and it's, it's massive, it's a big, big map. And you can see down here there's a, a boat on the Dead Sea. If you look closely, and again, you can print this out on the, on the course website, you see the fish are swimming this way until they get down here. This is the saltiest, lowest point in the Dead Sea. You know, multiple times saltier than the ocean. The fish turn around and they're swimming back up there. They can't go in there because it's too tall, right? But what, when they discovered it, they basically gave us a map of Jerusalem, of the whole area in the sixth century BC. There's a church built on it, just like there is everywhere. There's a church built on it. It's in modern Jordan in the city of Madaba. It's hard to find, but it's worth going if you're in Jordan. Yeah. Yes, very good question. The question is, is north that way? Yes, north is that way, just like all good maps in the ancient world. Think about this. Uh, today, north, we always put north up, correct? But in the ancient world, north was always what we would call to the west. East is always to the north on a map. East is always up. How do we know? What, this is, um, what, what do you do when you orient yourself? Or when you're disoriented. What's that? Because it's not the North Star. Yeah, you, well, what, what does the word disoriented mean? You're not aligned right. You need to orient yourself. You need, you, when you're a new freshman at UCLA, you've got to go to orientation. You've got to line yourself up straight. Well, what's the Latin word? What's, what's the Latin word orient mean? East. East. All maps were to be oriented. East is always up. And if you're disoriented, your map is maybe like it is today. Right? Who's to say that there's a great, I keep putting it on my Facebook site, and I keep putting it on my blog, um, there's a great clip out of the old show West Wing. It's probably before you guys. But they talk about, uh, what's the name of the map? There's a, there's a very special kind of map that tries to do away with this idea that north, that, that things on top are better than things on bottom. And it's arguing that South America, Africa, they're on the bottom of the globe, and surprise, they're poor. But things on the top, North America, Europe, see how they do that? It's because we, we tend to put things that are better on top. And then we blow up America to look much bigger on a flat map than it really is. America's really not that big, but since it's to the north, have you ever seen the maps in Greenland? Right, Greenland looks like this massive thing, but it's actually not all that big, it's just so close to the Anyway, all that is to say, um, there's a great scene where they're showing them this inverted map where south is north, and they basically say, well, you can't do that. And she says, why not? That's magnetic north anyway, right? Anyways, the whole, the whole thing is, i point out, east is always to the north in ancient maps, okay? Do we notice anything in here? Does anybody notice a city that we might want to talk about for a while? How about this one right here? This is Jerusalem. How do we know? Because in Greek and tiles it says Hagia Polis. Hagia means what? Holy. Polis? City. Jerusalem. And it cuts off. Holy City, Jerusalem. How about this one here? Who reads Greek? Bethlehem. 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 How about this one over. Go up here. See this city with the nice oasis with the palm trees around it? I E R 
Yerecho, Yerecho, Jericho. Right, so they stumble upon this thing and they go, ah, now we know where everything is. Okay, so let me show you uh, a few things before we go. Here, here's a, a close-up of Jerusalem, what it would have looked like towards the end of the Byzantine period. What do you notice about it? What's the big thing running down the middle? Uh, let's go on over. Let's go on over. Here you see the Damascus Gate up in the north. That's what it looks like today. Um, underneath the Damascus Gate, by the way, we have Hadrian's Gate. Damascus Gate is actually built. Remember I told you Jerusalem's been built up over the years? The original gate is underneath, just off to the left of that bridge. It's called Hadrian's Gate. That's what it looks like today. You can actually see the old gate underneath, down below. St. Stephen's Gate, remember when we looked at the gates? That's what it looks like today. That's represented in the map. The Dung Gate. The Dung Gate and what it looks like today. The Zion Gate and what it looks like today. How about this one, Jaffa Gate? Do you see the, do you see all the little gates? So this map tells us you know, pretty accurately everything about we need to know about the city. The Golden Gate. Remember, that was the one that's been walled up. It went into the east wall of the Jerusalem Temple Mount. Look at the Temple Mount. What do you notice about the Temple Mount on the map of Jerusalem? What is it not? What do we know about people who make maps? What did we just talked about? We put the big things in the center of the map. We try to point them in order. We try to highlight them. This is no longer in the center of the map. It's kind of up there, out of the way. Okay. So what's the center of the map now? The Cardo. When we talked about Justinian built the Cardo, well, excavators found it. This is what it looked like. Running right down the middle of the city of Jerusalem. Here's the evidence. And there's the map with the columns on both sides. There's the Cardo looking to the north. Here's another shot over here. To the south, of course, you want to make some money on your cargo, so you put shops in it today. It's a nice place to go shopping, nice and cool underground. And then, of course, at the center, you have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So this is the church that Helena said, let's, let's build. This is said to be the, the burial place of the birth, uh, burial place of Jesus who's the central figure of Christianity. They've got this thing called the Edicule that they built on top of it. Now there is question about whether or not the tomb that sits beneath this is actually <coughs> a first century tomb. <coughs> Appears to be a second century tomb. Uh, if you really want to go see a first century tomb inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, go around the Greek Orthodox area. By the way, remember I talked to you about there's all kinds of different Christian denominations splitting this thing up? This thing's actually split. Greek Orthodox on this end and the Coptics on the back end. And then back in here are the Armenians. We'll talk about the Armenians a little later. The Armenians worship back in the back there, and that's actually a first century tomb. So that we're, we really do have first century tombs here. Helen was close. Somebody gave her some good information. Whether or not you can build a, you know, discern whether or not it's the tomb of Jesus on a vision, Okay, not the best archaeological method, but that's the edicule. When you go to the church, the church only sepulchre looks like this. It's actually a chapel built upon a chapel, built upon a chapel, built upon a chapel. 
This is the entrance right down here. Very ornate. This is a, a, a picture of the front of the attitude. You, you can walk in there, you wait in the line, and you can go in there. I'll, I'll spare you pictures of me smiling in there. <laughs> here it is from the side, from the upper balcony. And you can see them getting ready to have some kind of festival. They've got the lights all uh, lit up up there. Trying to go quickly, so I'll make one more point before we go. Uh, there's a floor plan, you can see this uh, on, on, the, on the website. What I want to point out is, among other things, that the Holy Sepulchre becomes the new magnet. Remember, it moves from the, to the western hill, the Holy Sepulchre becomes um, the, the tomb was a theophany. Basically, God was in this tomb, right? If you believe Nicene Christianity. Okay? And Adam. I'll show you a picture in a second, but the tomb of Adam, we won't read what, uh, what Mark Twain wrote about this one, but it's on the it's on the course notes. Abraham is said to now have bound Isaac here, not up on the mount, up on where the, where the temple used to be, on the temple mount, but now it's here. And Adam was born here, or pardon me, buried here, right? So this becomes the center where the divinity touches humanity in a very unique way. And of course, we've already talked about Helena finding the true cross here. And destruction of Aphrodite's temple that was there prior to the building of this as kind of a triumph over the powers of evil, of paganism. Christianity replacing paganism. Call it holy archaeology. We call it bad archaeology. When you rip down someone else to build your own religious thing, that's not the best way to do archaeology. That's what was going on in the Byzantine period. Okay, let me, let me blow through this. You got this? Sorry, I'm sorry. I've got a few minutes left, and I want to touch one other thing. In five minutes. Okay? We'll skip that. I want to talk just for a second about the Nia Church. The Nia Church kind of comes along with Justinian. And look at it. It's, it's, all, it's bigger. It's basically the biggest church of the period. Bigger than the Holy Sepulchre. Um, we have pictures of the uh, reconstructions of the inside of it. We actually have the plans of it. We actually have the plans of it and the actual foundation. I, I like the picture. I like, and I don't want to tell you anything that I can't back up with. So there's the apse of it. Um, you can see the center apse here. It was the biggest church at the time. The question is, why build a massive new church? Why not just leave the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Well, as we said, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was a church upon a church upon a chapel and a chapel and it's kind of built out. You want to do something new, so they call it the Nia Church. And here's just an inscription um, basically saying that Justinian um, and the priest built the church here. It's nice. I don't care that you know it. What I want to get to is this slide here. Why the Nia Church? Why did Justinian build this? This is an important point to make. We have these descriptions of it from Procopius of Caesarea, okay? And he says, and I want you to look at the yellow <coughs> that I put in here, okay? And in Jerusalem, Justinian dedicated to the Mother of God, Mary's Church, a shrine to which no other can be compared. Two columns stand before the door of the church, exceptionally large, probably second to no column in the world. What else do we know that had two columns standing in front of it? Yeah, what were their names, by the way? 
Boaz and Yahim, okay? They found certain dense forests that produced cedars of extraordinary height. What do we know that was paneled with, with cedars? And, well, specifically, what big building in Jerusalem? Yeah, the temple, right? And Justinian ordered that it be built on the highest of hills, specifying its length and its breadth. That is, 200 cubits by 100 cubits, which if you look in Isaiah 2 and Ezekiel, are the dimensions of what? Why do we need to build a new church, the Nea church? Why did Justinian find it so important to build this new church in the Christian part of Jerusalem, away from the Temple Mount? Or at least, uh, why was it important for him to build this new church that looked like, at least by its description, had aspects of the Jerusalem Temple? Two pillars out front, the same dimensions of the Jerusalem Temple. It's another, yet another attempt to try to take the traditions of another religion that you accept and apply them to your new set of beliefs. Just, Justinian is basically trying to build a church that looked like the temple in Jerusalem. Any questions? Any questions? All right. Uh, Thursday, the rise of Islam. Thanks, guys.